Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. We have a couple of special opportunities this week. One is to help Jean-Claude and Sophie move. Jean-Claude and Sophie, wave your hands back there at the back. Thank you very much. They're going to be moving on Thursday afternoon at 4 p.m. They're going to be moving from right over here to a place over in Bennington. And we would love to have some help. The, uh, the move is uh, relatively small in terms of the amount of things that are going to be moved. And it will take, uh, if a few of us show up, and when I say few, like let's say we had 10. If 10 of us showed up, we would be done within a couple of hours. And so you'd be home in time for dinner. Okay, love to have you show up and do that. But also, we have another opportunity that Jonathan knows about, and I don't. So Jonathan, why don't you come and tell us about the other opportunity? Okay, uh, can you hear me? Do I need to use the mic? No, okay. It's, it's also a move, and it's tomorrow. So a lady from the community called us. Her name is Marie, and she has back problems. I met her yesterday, and she's very, very small. Yeah, she cannot move large objects. So she has uh, one guy who's helping her tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock load a truck. And she can use any able-bodied Men or women, I think, but, but it, it would be loaded just a few pieces of larger furniture uh, tomorrow in the morning for a few hours. So if anybody's able to do that, please come talk to me today before we get out and we'll make arrangements. So she has a truck that's already truck. available, right? So we just load stuff onto her truck and then we offload off her truck. And she has one big Greek guy named Anastasios. Okay. Is Anastasios going to be driving the truck? I don't know. Okay. You could be driving the truck. Maybe. We'll see. Okay. All right. So, if you, and, and, and so, okay, you'll give us the address and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, we have another opportunity to serve somebody in our community by helping them move. And uh, I think we'll be blessed by doing so. And, and obviously, she's going to be richly blessed by having us go and serve. So let's uh, together do that. That would be wonderful. I was thinking this week about... Words that we use to describe the ultimate aspirations of human beings, okay? Now, when I say something like the ultimate aspirations of human beings, automatically somebody says, what is he talking about, okay? We're not talking here about winning the Olympic 100 meters, okay? That would be, a, that would be an aspiration. Uh, we might think that we're going to uh, jump higher and faster than anybody, has ever done so. That would be an aspiration. We might say, I'm going to uh, earn more money in one day than anybody ever has before in the history of the world. Okay, We could have an aspiration like that, but those would not be ultimate aspirations. When I say ultimate aspirations, I mean things like this. Happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, inner peace, contentment. And you might think, well, if I earned all the money in the world or more than anybody else ever has in one day, that happiness and satisfaction would be mine. Or if I could just run the marathon in two hours flat, nobody's ever done that before, then ultimately satisfaction, fulfillment, inner peace, and contentment would be mine. Okay, I don't think so. These things seem bigger than that, but those are the kind of things that I'm talking about in terms of ultimate satisfactions. Well, in 1943... A fellow by the name of Abraham Maslow, and many of you will have already seen this or know this, set forth his hierarchy of needs, which became a kind of paradigm for thinking about that which is most important to human beings. And Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs looks like this. 
a little bit fuzzy. It's really clear on this one. I wish you could all just get up here and see this one. Physiological needs are the foundation, Maslow says, of what it means to have all your needs met. Safety needs then come next with security and safety and then belongingness and love needs, esteem needs above that. And then ultimately, he uses this term self-actualization, which interestingly enough, when I was about uh, 19 or 20 years old, I was preaching on a Wednesday night just for a few minutes at the Southern Hills Church of Christ. And I started talking about being self-actualized. Because I was 20 and I knew everything. (laughs) And so I started talking to these Texans about what it meant to be self-actualized. I don't think they really got it. I think they were a little baffled by what I was trying to say. And they should have been. Because it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me either. But I think Maslow was trying to say something similar to the notion of happiness. And satisfaction and fulfillment, inner peace and contentment. He calls it self-actualization. But it's really the same thing. It's this highest, ultimist, ultimate, ultimatest, the most ultimate aspiration that one can have. And I think it's interesting when you think about God in relationship to this kind of thing. Where does our faith take us? Now, in terms of the things that build up to this or lead to our happiness... I would say something like this is true, and I think Maslow would say the same thing. That the lower level factors, like in his scheme, if we were to look at this, physiological needs, safety needs, belongingness and love needs, those kind of things, lower level factors contribute to the reaching of our ultimate aspirations. So there are some things that are rather basic that we can reach. There are some things that we can have. And these things ultimately add up to or take us in a direction of the ultimate fulfillment kind of things. Now my sense is that sometimes people will replace the ultimate happiness or the ultimate satisfaction and they'll replace that with some of the lower things. And so sometimes we think if we can just have somebody really love us. Or if we can have all the food we need. There's got to be somebody who thinks, if I just had all the money in the world, I would ultimately have happiness and satisfaction. We try and replace that thing at the top with those things at the bottom. And I think that's a mistake. You may have seen me talk about this at one point. First of all, love sometimes is an attempt by people to say, this is the ultimate. You've seen people talk about that. But then sometimes we've talked in here about happiness and even attempting to be happy ourselves and say, this is the ultimate for me. And so, Ed, if you could play this video, this will bring back some memories for some of you, if we can get this on. How are we doing? We're trying. Volume? Don't I look good? (laughs) My goal was to do this because I thought if I do the chicken dance, I'll be happy. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Okay, right now I'm going, 
I'm happy. Remember this? I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy. Okay, this worked very well. Okay, you can go back to the PowerPoint. When I was preaching that, the point was is that I could sing that song and I could act like I'm really happy, but happiness in that way is not really what we want to have and isn't going to do as much for us as we want it to do. The fact is there are, in fact, some ultimate aspiration kind of things that go way beyond just my temporary happiness that mean something to us and that are, in fact, really important. And, and I, I put up a, on the screen a moment ago this notion of love, and I could say, well, love is kind of one of those. And so you will remember, some of you anyway, that John Lennon sang a song about love. I should let you guys sing this instead of just me. What did Lennon say about love? It's all you need. And so we should sing this, church. No, I won't. But all you need is love. And then then there's this musical line that kind of goes, Da-da-da-da, all you need is love. Max, are you with me? Da-da-da-da, all you need is love. Love. All you need is love, or there, love is all you need. And then he goes into this thing, right? Love is all you need. Love is all you need. Was he right? What do you think? Because there's a lot of people that would say that he was. There's a lot of people that would say that John Lennon was absolutely right about love being all you need. And I'm not sure that about that, John Lennon was right. In fact, I would say if he's going to have these things like happiness and ultimate aspirations reached, that something is a lot more important. In fact, Maslow himself would say the same thing. Look where love comes on Maslow's chart. Does it come at the top? No. It's right in the middle. So love itself, which a lot of people today would say is the ultimate... I'm arguing this morning is actually not. And so, Jonathan, I'm coming to love you. But I love the lady behind you way more. It doesn't matter, though, how much I love the lady behind him and how much she loves me. I'm not sure that even that is going to ultimately satisfy me and give me everything that I need in life. And I'm not the first one to discover this. So I want you to turn to 1 Kings, if you would. It's on page 238 in your pew Bibles. And it's interesting to me that for Solomon, it's not so much love, but even this other great quality of life that he requests that ends up being somehow inadequate in terms of who he is as a person, and especially as he is as God's man. Look at chapter 3 in 1 Kings. It's on page, what I say, 238 in your pew Bibles. And look at verse 1. It says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace in the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. 
The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statue of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. That's interesting. I want you to think about for a moment the compromises that Solomon has already made. Verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings." This is interesting. Solomon asks for wisdom. And the text specifically says that God is pleased with his choice. But I'm wondering today whether or not wisdom, which clearly God was pleased that he asked for this, if even wisdom is an ultimate aspiration for us. Whether or not God, in granting Solomon wisdom, even gives Solomon the greatest thing that he needs in order to be God's man. Now think about that for a sec. Solomon asks for wisdom, and God is obviously pleased. But is that the ultimate? Is that going to make Solomon everything that he needs before the Lord? Now I want you to flip over to chapter 4, verse 29. The text says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breath of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, Wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of this wisdom. Now, this is amazing. From what I can tell, Solomon says, God, give me wisdom, and God makes him a botanist. He makes him an apparent natural historian. He makes him a scientific authority. 
He gives him wisdom about all kinds of matters of life. As we know, when we read the stories, he gives him wisdom about judgment. Solomon makes decisions in law courts that blow everybody away. This man is amazingly wise. So is Solomon then, as one who is so wise, a recipient of the very epitome of what it means to be a human being? Has Solomon, for example, in his wisdom, become happy? Has Solomon, in his wisdom, reached inner peace? Do you think that Solomon, in his wisdom, has become satisfied? And my impression is that the answer is no. In fact, when I look at the rest of Solomon's life, it's amazing to me all the things that Solomon keeps trying to do to be fulfilled, even though he possesses this incredible amount of wisdom. And so I would say something like this is true. In asking for wisdom, Solomon is asking only for one of the lower level factors leading to happiness and contentment. It's somewhere down on the scale. It's not the ultimate. Which even though he reaches some level of wisdom, an incredible level of wisdom in fact, I still wonder if there isn't more that he needs. Now, we know from Solomon's life that he also had a relationship with God. And so look at chapter 7. And I want you to look at verse 51. The text says, When all the works King Solomon had done for the temple, the Lord was finished. And he had done tons of things for the Lord. He had built the temple. He put all the furnishings in the temple. It's an amazing thing what he had done for God. When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. And then if you'll notice in chapter 8, he brings in the ark and continues to worship God. And then look at chapter 8, verse 59. He's he's talking about all the things that he's done, and then he prays, and he praises the Lord. And in verse 59, as he finishes this section, it says, And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. But your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands at this time. Now, does that sound to you like a man who has it together in terms of the things of the Lord? Look at verses 59, just through the end of that section there, and even look at it again if you need to. Does Solomon seem like he has it together in terms of the things of the Lord? What do you think? Ryan is nodding yes. Thank you, Ryan, for the participation. I think so, too. Like, when I look at verse 59 and following, and it says, And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people, etc. It sounds to me like Solomon's got it together. And so not only does this guy have great wisdom, 
but he seems to be a man who is seeking after God. Now look at chapter 9, verse 1. When Solomon finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I've heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne forever over Israel as a promised as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fall, fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. And he goes on. He says, for example, in verse 6, but if you, you and your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. So even though Solomon has asked for wisdom and received it, And even though everything points in the direction of him having a solid relationship with God, God still warns Solomon, this wise and spiritual man, don't depart. Don't, for a second, begin to take for granted the relationship that you have with me. Now, the fact is, is that by the end of chapter 10... When the Queen of Sheba comes, you can flip over in your Bibles. By the end of chapter 10, when the Queen of Sheba comes, it looks as though Solomon is everything that God wants him to be. He has built the temple. He has built a palace. He has built the city. He is being sought after by kings everywhere because of his wisdom. He's encouraged the people to be spiritual and to not depart from their faith in God. Everything looks like Solomon is exactly where he needs to be. And yet, we know the rest of the story. We know that there were lots of times when there was no king on the throne in Israel because the people had departed. We know that very soon after Solomon dies, the nation splits asunder with one king ruling two tribes and one king ruling the rest of the tribes and that things are in utter chaos. We know that within a few hundred years after this, the Babylonians and the Assyrians have come in and completely destroyed the nation. And so what in the world went wrong? Here you have a guy who is ultimately wise, who appears to have it all together and is saying all the right things. But there are in the midst of this some signs and some questions. I want you to look first at chapter 6. Look at verse 37. The text says that the foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building the temple. Verse 1 of chapter 7. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of what? His palace. How long did it take to build the temple? How long did it take to build his palace? 
Why does it take almost twice as long to build the king's palace as it takes to build the temple of the Lord? Look at chapter 6, verse 2. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. He built the palace of the forest of Lebanon 100 cubits long, 50 wide, and 30 high, with four rows of cedar columns supporting trimmed cedar beams. Which is larger? The palace or the temple? You can do the math. It looks to me like the temple is smaller than the palace. No wonder it took longer to build the palace. It's bigger. And in fact, I would say it probably is more ornate. Now look at chapter 3, verse 14. He says, And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all in his court. He's trying to do some good things. But even in the midst of this, while trying to do the right things, Solomon apparently has a bit of a divided heart. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you're building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my commands and regulations, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. There is a promise there. So the question is, where's the compromise? And doesn't it look as though, at least at one place, when he is building the temple as opposed to the palace, the fulfillment of all the vision that God has for him is not being carried out in exactly the way that God describes it specifically needs to be carried out. Now look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Chapter 11 says this. King Solomon, however... Loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, You must not intermarry with them because they will, not, they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. So if he has 700 wives of royal birth, where did they come from? They didn't all come from Israel. They had to have been foreign women. The text says he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. We've seen all these texts this morning that say that's the one thing you cannot do. You have to be devoted to God the way that his father had David, the way his father David had been. 
Verse 5, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So the Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And then it's not surprising, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And so we start to understand why the kingdom becomes divided. We start to understand why there's a division within the kingship. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Well, clearly, Solomon had not reached some point of ultimate aspiration. In other words, happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment and peace were not his. How do you know that? How do you know that that's the case with him? Isn't it because he just keeps having more wives? Isn't it because he just keeps building bigger and more beautiful buildings? Isn't it because he keeps seeking relationships with other nations, marrying the daughters of the kings of these nations so that he can build relationships? The man, in all his wisdom, and all his splendor, and all his wealth, and all his glory, is not a satisfied man. And on top of that, because he's not satisfied, he continually does the very things that God tells him ultimately not to do if he's going to be God's servant. And, you know, he gives a pretense at so many places here. He offers wonderful prayers, and I think he was sincere. He tries so hard to be all that God wants him to be at one level. But this is not a satisfied man. And it's because he doesn't ultimately worship the Lord the way that he should. There's at least three things I think that we need to see from this fellow today. The first one is this. The ultimate in human aspirations, happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, inner peace, contentment, are not reached through only the medium of human or, or this worldly needs. And yet we try this all the time. We keep trying. And we think that somehow, if we just get enough, or we build a bigger place, or we just have some new relationships, that somehow ultimate fulfillment is going to be ours. And so people work their fingers to the bone to achieve and at the end find themselves unsatisfied. People have relationships that they shouldn't have ultimately because I think there's something missing 
And so they're trying to have a new one. Something will fulfill me. And it doesn't fulfill. Solomon, in that sense, was no different than you and me. And he fails, therefore, to have all that he needs. Abraham Maslow had it wrong. And so does every other assessor of human fulfillment when they reach out of their hierarchy, leave, when they leave out of their hierarchy the need of being one with the one who is beyond the human and natural, when they ignore God or allow other things to take his place. And so if you think to yourself, why am I unsatisfied? Or why is it this person that I know, whom I love perhaps, is unsatisfied? Why is life not going for me the way that I want it to go? And I would say that one of the big reasons is because like every generation of human beings that has gone before us, we keep trying to find the answer in other places besides the Lord. And it does not work. And so go buy the bigger one. Go get the new one. Go try the new whatever. And I guarantee you that the grass on the other side of the fence, while it appears to be wonderful, is not going to be so green after you've been there a while. And Solomon looked and he tried and he had everything at his disposal in order to do it and it simply didn't work. Look at this again. The things at the bottom here are so often the very things that we try. And it just doesn't take us where we want to go. Notice too in this that there is absolutely nothing spiritual or God-oriented here. There are only human-oriented needs that are being met And even the notion of self-actualization as Maslow would talk about it, which sometimes seems kind of spiritual, is nothing more than a natural fulfillment. And so happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, inner peace, contentment are not reached through only the meeting of human or this worldly needs. There is a spiritual, God-ordained commitment that must be ours if we're ever going to reach that ultimate kind of end. So number one, we can try it all we want in terms of new things, these human things. They're not going to take us where we want to go. The second thing is, not just any spirituality will do. And Solomon tried all kinds of roots of spirituality. But ultimately, it doesn't work for him to just be spiritual. To go to the high places and offer sacrifices in the way that people had done for generations ends up not meeting the need. And the number one claim in our world today when it comes to religion and spirituality is that anything will do. Just pick one. They're all headed in the same place. Well, in many ways, Solomon is the ultimate chooser of places. He has all kinds of options that are available to him. And where do they ultimately take him? Well, obviously to a point not of being fulfilled. 
And it's only when we turn to Yahweh that we find the kind of fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment that we as people need. And so not only is it not money that doesn't do it, but you can seek all kinds of spiritual roots and it's only the God of the Jews, the God of Jesus Christ, who ultimately is fulfilling for us. And then number three, small compromises bear large consequences. I want you to look at chapter three of 1 Kings. Now, notice verse one with me here. It says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. It's his first wife. Things at this point look okay. And then he brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. And the people, however, were, st- still, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. And you'd think that at this point, Solomon would call them off of the high places to worship at the temple. But he's made two mistakes at the very beginning of his reign. He marries the wife of Pharaoh's or marries the daughter of Pharaoh, and then he continues to worship at the high places. That one wife from Pharaoh ends up becoming 700 wives from other nations. And the high places, which at first he's just worshiping Yahweh at the high place, becomes the worship of Moloch and the worship of the Asterisks. And you know what went on there? Human sacrifice. So Solomon starts with one wife of a pharaoh and ends up with 700. He begins worshiping God at the high places like everybody else. And they end up with child sacrifices being committed with the cooperation of the king of Israel. And so we think we make these decisions and they're not all that important but they end up taking us down a path that is incredibly destructive we keep trying we keep seeking we keep hoping that something in our lives is going to be satisfying and the only thing that is going to satisfy even someone like King Solomon is ultimately the worship of our God and King. So go ahead. Try the other. Give yourself in some provisional, halfway kind of way to the worship of Jesus. And see where it gets you. And my concern is that we have a lot of Christians who give themselves halfway to this worship of God and they end up in the same place that Solomon ends up. And God simply wants from us something different. And so I would say, give your heart completely to Him. Serve Him with all your heart. And God will then give you not just wisdom, but those ultimate things in life that are truly satisfying. As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne forever over Israel. 
as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. That was never fulfilled because Solomon was not what God wanted him to be ultimately. Only in Jesus is that ultimately fulfilled, which means that we have a chance to see that fulfillment take place in our lives in a way that Solomon never did. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray that you would help us to be wiser than Solomon. But not wise just in worldly kinds of ways. Help our wisdom to be a wisdom of the heart that is wholly devoted to you. Father, we have lots of options for how we can seek satisfaction in our world. And so often we choose them. Help us not to choose them, but to instead just choose and look to you. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.